Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Whenever Italian astronomer Galileo made a new discovery, he used to note his findings in the form of a complex anagram, as a protection against rival scientists stealing his discoveries to claim them as their own. Luckily for Professor David Jamison, scientists don't have to use this method of communication anymore, otherwise he'd really have his work cut out for him. Professor Jamison is a physicist at the University of Melbourne and chief investigator of the Victorian node of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computer Technology. With expertise that ranges from quantum technology to the physics of planets and to science communication, his knowledge just about covers the entire universe. Dr Andy Horvath sat down with David Jamison to discuss all things subatomic and astronomical. Professor David, you're one of the favourite physicists on campus. People like to go to your lectures. Oh, good to hear. (laughs) You recently did a lecture on the double planet, the physics of the Earth-Moon system. Now, humans have known the effect of the Moon's orbit on the Earth in terms of tides, but is it a two-way system? Does the Earth affect the Moon? Yes, well, our Earth-Moon system, where we live, is a very unusual arrangement, uh, even by the standards of our solar system, because we have this unusually large moon in proportion to the size of the Earth. And uh, this has a, the moon's gravity has a very strong effect on the uh, oceans of the Earth and generates the tides, as, as you say. Uh, But also we have this unusual situation that our moon is big enough to completely cover the sun when there's an eclipse over a large area. And uh, that's a remarkable coincidence that our large moon uh, should have the same size in the sky uh, compared to the even larger sun, which of course is very far away. And so I wanted to convey some of the peculiarities of the Earth-Moon system in my lecture. And what are some of the peculiarities? Well, the first is that the moon is so large in proportion to the size of the Earth. Uh, Second of all is that the Earth and the moon uh, seem to be made of the same stuff. And this has given us clues as to how the uh, Earth and the moon came to be. And the popular theory that seems to be consistent with most of the facts is that uh, when the Earth first condensed out of the protosolar nebula, we copped a massive collision with a Mars-sized object called Thea, which uh, blew the uh, outer layers of the Earth out into space, which condensed into the Moon. So if you like, when you look up at the Moon, what you're seeing is the crust of the Earth in orbit around the Earth. Our crust is very thin compared to Mars and Venus, which are not blessed by such large uh, moons. You once gave a talk to the Royal Society entitled Will the World End in 2012? How Galileo Created Modern Astronomy That Holds the Answer. We need the answers. And the world didn't end in 2012. What happened? Well, just a bit of context for this. Um, This lecture was actually supposed to be given by Jocelyn Bell Burnell, the famous uh, discoverer of uh, pulsars. Uh, But she was detained uh, in the Canary Islands due to a volcanic eruption that prevented her flight taking off. So I was asked at the last minute to step in and give this lecture. 
And the theme of the lecture was originally on the end of the Mayan long calendar, which uh, was receiving a lot of popular press at the time because it seemed, by some accounts, to suggest the world was coming to an end. Oh, yeah, the world was coming to an end. Another one of those predictions, you know. Uh, Anyway, uh, so that was what I was asked to speak on at short notice. So I realised that uh, this was a good opportunity to promote my interests in my hero, Galileo, at the same time, uh, as well as explaining the origin of calendars and the the celestial clockwork, which uh, is the background to all our uh, timekeeping and calendars. Uh, so, uh, yeah, needless to say, as you've quite rightly pointed out, here we are today, the world didn't come to an end, and uh, the Mayan calendar was a particularly ingenious and durable long-term calendar that had been developed as a result of careful astronomical observations to looking for regularities in the movement of the uh, celestial objects, and indeed Galileo also observed these uh, regularities uh, with his astounding astronomical observations in 1609, when for the first time a a telescope was pointed at the sky, an astronomical telescope was pointed at the sky and allowing us to see things that had never been seen before. Now tell us about your fascination with Galileo and the planet Neptune. Right. So a long time ago, um, I gave a a public lecture on the modelling the uh, celestial Uh, movements of the planets and the stars uh, relative to the Earth using computer software. And that was very novel at the long ago times when I gave that lecture because uh, PCs were just becoming widespread. It was very early in my career. And to illustrate my lecture, I used one of these newly available planetarium software packages to model what Galileo saw Uh, through his telescope in 1609 up to 1613 because you could wind the clock back and see what the sky looked like 400 years ago. And as an interesting uh, anecdote associated with that uh, was to reproduce the observations on the computer that Galileo made in uh, 1612 and 1613 where he observed carefully the planet Jupiter and its uh, four Galilean moons, which he discovered, never seen before, because you can't see them with the unaided eye. And Galileo was a fanatic. He tracked Jupiter night after night, wrote down in his astronomical notebooks what he saw, the position of the planet and its four tiny moons, and he tried to understand what was going on, and he could see that these moons were orbiting Jupiter and, of course, not the Earth. And this was the first time an object had been carefully documented, or four objects carefully documented as rotating around an object other than the Earth, as was the theory, the uh, geocentric theory at the time. And uh, Galileo was a good physicist, so whenever, uh, as he was tracking Uh, Jupiter across the sky, a star happened to drift through the field of view because a planet, after all, is a wandering star, uh, whereas uh, a real star is fixed in the sky. So as as Jupiter wandered through the sky on its orbit, he uh, recorded any stars that appeared in the field of view. And on a few nights, uh, he recorded faithfully this star, which when you wind the planetarium software back to that night, uh, doesn't exist in any star catalogue. 
And the reason why it doesn't exist is because it's not a star, it is indeed a planet. A new planet for Galileo, which of course we now know as the planet Neptune. And uh, that's all very well. You can't see Neptune with the unaided eye, you need a telescope to spot it. But on one particular night, next to uh, the planet Neptune that Galileo recorded as a star, was a real star, which does appear in our star catalogues. And what's remarkable, on that night when Galileo, Galileo recorded the position of the real star and Neptune, he wrote in the margin of his notebook, Star B, which was Neptune, appeared to move because it was in close proximity to a real star. So on 24 hours apart, previous night and the present night, uh, the gap opened up as Neptune moved in its orbit. So uh, I then came up with the theory that uh, because Galileo was a very smart guy and uh, very open to the new things he was seeing, it must have occurred to him, oh, I've just seen a star move. Oh, a wandering star. That would be a planet, a new planet, not recorded in any of the literature. The first planet seen by humanity since deep antiquity. Right, that's good. Now, what shall I do with that piece of information? As he was observing uh, Neptune, and he recorded it on several nights, not just one, and indeed the night where he saw it move, he had to move his telescope away from Jupiter because this was all happening outside of the field of view. So he'd been tracking this object for a number of weeks. He moved His telescope only had a very small field of view, so he had to move it away from Jupiter, across into the inky blackness around Jupiter, to pick up this object and, and the nearby star. So he was following it, keeping an eye on it. My theory was that he must have known it was a new planet, but once it moved away from Jupiter, or rather once Jupiter moved away in its orbit, it would be very hard to find again. He, he didn't have a computerised pointing system, uh, and he didn't know about Newtonian gravity, so he couldn't have calculated its orbit and predicted where it would be on a subsequent night. And eventually you'd lose it, because you can't see it with the unaided eye, and without Jupiter to guide you to uh, a particular point in the sky, you couldn't find it again. And Galileo, I think, knew that the night sky was not his personal property. And as a physicist, you can't use your own authority to say something is true. You can only say, I've discovered this and hope that it will be confirmed by other observers. So Galileo was of the habit of encoding uh, discoveries in anagrams because he was uh, he knew that you had to publish or perish and that if you're going to get uh, credit for a discovery, you had to be the first, no good get it being the second. And so he'd written letters about previous discoveries where he'd encrypted the discovery in an anagram to establish a timestamp for the discovery. And then he'd spent some additional weeks confirming what he'd seen or trying to understand what he'd seen. So he did that for the planet Venus. When you look at Venus through a telescope, it demonstrates phases like the moon. So he wrote in Latin, the mother of love follows the shape of Cynthia. You know, that's great, you know, to have a scientific discovery uh, couched in such terms. Rearranged the letters and put it in an envelope and sent it off to uh, one of the people he was corresponding with. Whilst he continued to watch Venus and watch it go through its uh, 200 
170-odd days of phase period. So he could figure out, ah, Venus is obviously orbiting the sun because that's the only way to explain why it changes its shape like that. And you can't see it with the unaided eye. You need a telescope. And then once he'd figured it out, he could announce that this anagram meant that Venus has phases like the moon. Uh, and he would therefore not be uh, challenged for being the first to discover this remarkable uh, fact. He also uh, did the same with Saturn. When he observed Saturn through his telescope, it looked like it had two gigantic moons sticking out the side. So, Because uh, he didn't know, know about rings, of course, and his telescope wasn't good enough to show the rings very clearly. And it looked to him like there was Saturn with two giant moons bulging out the side that always stay in the same place. So he wrote that as an anagram as well, but he never really figured out what the heck he was seeing there. And the, the true nature of the rings of Saturn were not discovered, uh, not, not thoroughly explained until well after Galileo. So I figure, having observed Neptune move, he must have written in his notebook an anagram. And maybe week after week, he tried to find it again. So he could track it across the sky, but it would not have been easy with his telescope. And he was very distracted with other things at this time. And so maybe he never came back to it, despite the importance of the discovery. So I had to make up my own anagram uh, as to what I thought Galileo would have said. Above the king of heaven, Jupiter, there is another wandering star, Neptune. So I translated that into Latin and rearranged the letters and said, that's the anagram that I'm looking for in Galileo's papers, but I never found it, despite looking uh, somewhat intensively. So maybe my theory is wrong, or maybe it's still there in some letter yet to be discovered in the Galileo papers. Professor David, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Indeed. <laughs> and writing anagrams. You're an extraordinary physicist in the sense that you're, you look out into the cosmos, but you also look into the atomic world. And I want to talk about your research in quantum physics and quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Now, quantum computing is kind of like a whole new ball game. It, it's not the zeros and ones. It's sort of like zeros, ones, and all of the above at the same time. So lower us in to quantum computing. Give us the 101 version that we mm -hmm. can grasp your research with. Okay, so if we start first with classical computing where we encode information as strings of ones and zeros, the binary system, the bit, either a zero or a one. At the fundamental level, that's how information is stored and processed in our conventional computers. Strings of ones and zeros go down the internet and then they're reassembled into words and sounds and pictures and videos at the other end. And this has been a very successful approach uh, and is largely responsible for shaping the modern world. So we now have this marvellous classical uh, computer-based civilization where everyone is connected. But it's remarkable that uh, the real world doesn't work by classical principles as I've described, where you have a one or a zero in your memory state. The real world at its most fundamental le level is quantum mechanical. So a quantum mechanical object has a number of very strange attributes that normally we don't experience at first hand, but if we drill right down to the fundamental building blocks of nature, 
it's all digital and quantum at that level. You're talking about the level of the atom and even lower. At the level of the atom and the electron and the photon, the quantum mechanical particles that are the building blocks of matter, that when assembled together give us this uh, classical world that is our of everyday experience. But at that level, function in a completely different laws of physics game. Well, that's right. The quantum mechanical laws are, are responsible for the classical world at the large scale, but we don't harness them directly in human-built engineered machines. We typically only exploit the classical behaviour of the assemblage of quantum mechanical objects. So about uh, 20 years ago, new ideas began emerging for new types of computers, new ways of transmitting and storing and processing information based on fundamental quantum mechanical laws rather than the classical laws. And so the most, some of the most important quantum attributes we want to harness for new technology involves uh, superposition and entanglement, fundamental quantum mechanical ideas that we don't have practical experience with in everyday life because they're attributes only of the fundamental building blocks of nature. So this allows us to build machines, if we're going to be successful at harnessing these attributes, in which the information is encoded not as ones or zero, but ones and zero. So a quantum mechanical object can be in two states or two places at the same time. And this is not something we have practical experience with in the everyday world because it only happens at the very smallest building blocks of matter. And these attributes can allow us to build machines in principle and in practice now uh, that will solve problems that cannot be solved with classical principles. So, for example, let's take the caffeine molecule, a really important molecule for physics because it docks with all the physics acceptors in your brain and makes them go around faster. I'm only joking about that. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's not just physicists that like <laughs> caffeine. <laughs> but the caffeine molecule uh, has a, a particular structure, and we would like to be able to calculate that structure from first principles. We understand perfectly the Schrodinger equation that governs the behavior of all the electrons that join together all the atoms to make up the caffeine molecule. But even in principle, we can't solve the equations to get the result to get the answer to the question, what is the configuration of the caffeine molecule? Because a classical computer can only deal even with the best possible supercomputers with present technology with about 30 electrons because the electron-electron interactions are so complicated, mm -hmm. it just can't keep track of them all. Whereas a quantum computer exploiting the fundamental quantum principles will be able to solve the structure, hopefully, of the caffeine molecule which has 100 electrons that we have to keep track of, and that will remain forever beyond the capability of a classical machine. Now, a quantum computer, just to get it straight, is not your next-generation laptop. It's kind of like, I think I've heard you describe it as a large freezer um, that might be used in laboratories for scientific research. Well, as uh, the uh, great Australian physicist Jared Milburn from the University of Queensland said, who's been very active in this field, looking at the fundamental uh, theories, it's not the next step, it's not the next laptop, it's a whole new journey. The quantum computer will enable us to do things that we haven't contemplated being able to do with classical machines. And getting onto where we will find quantum computers in the near future 
just as now, uh, when you use your mobile phone to do a Google search, you have the illusion that your phone is doing a search. It is not doing any such thing. The phone is contacting the internet uh, and passing your inquiry to the supercomputers in who knows where they are these days, in the cloud somewhere, and they process your request, find the information, and send it back to your mobile phone. So today, our computers largely access resources from the internet. They pull down the resources they need to answer your questions and do the tasks you assign to them. So in the future, that is also how you will access quantum computers who will be probably in very low temperature refrigeration units so they don't suffer from thermal effects which would destroy the delicate uh, quantum states that they need for doing their calculations. But to you, you'll just have the quantum computer access portal on your mobile to do things that you might need the power of a quantum computer to do. So we will be accessing quantum computing at some point. Is the silicon chip still involved? Yes, well, you know, silicon, what a marvellous material. So it turns out, uh, strangely enough, that silicon has a lot of physical attributes which make it ideal for building a quantum computer. And that's part of my research program is at looking at how to do that. Silicon uh, is a marvellous material because all the silicon atoms occupy a regular crystal lattice in which all the electrons orbiting the silicon atoms are beautifully paired up. So each electron is like a little bar magnet and you can imagine uh, all these little bar magnets click together with the north and south poles beautifully aligned with each other to cancel out uh, the field. And so you end up with something that's become known as a semiconductor vacuum. It's the next best thing to a real vacuum for doing quantum mechanics because all the electric fields, all the magnetic fields beautifully cancel out and it's a nice clean environment for constructing delicate quantum states for doing computation. And it's just a coincidence that silicon is the most versatile material for the classical semiconductor industry. But we've had uh, 60 years of technological development of this material and uh, we are hoping to, well, we are are using that 60-year knowledge base to build our prototype quantum computer machines in silicon. Have I got this right? You fire ion beams into the silicon because you're trying to create a disruption in the lattice because that puts it into a quantum state. Yes. So what uh, my part of this big project is to uh, insert the dopant atoms yeah. that give silicon its uh, useful attributes, both for classical computers, but also for quantum computers. So we want to encode quantum information on arrays of single phosphorus atoms inserted carefully into the right places in the silicon crystal lattice. We do that with uh, iron implantation, a standard industry technique for putting phosphorus into silicon. Uh, but our trick is to put one phosphorus atom in at a time because we need to have each phosphorus atom carefully wired up to the external circuits that we use for programming and reading out its quantum state. And that's the technique I've developed with my colleagues in my laboratory here in Melbourne. I'm so amazed that your interests are subatomic but also astronomical. I mean, you basically cover the universe, Professor David. <laughs> Well, perhaps Galileo was the uh, first true physicist, so he set the pace for the way you do things by observation and uh, uh, explanation, which we're still using today. 
How far away are we from the quantum computer being somewhat mainstream? Well, there are small quantum computers now being deployed for secure communications. So these are small, usually photon-based machines that go at the end of an optical fibre in which information is encoded in quantum states superimposed on the photons, which then fly down the optical fibres and uh, can be read out at the other end. And the beauty of this is that the delicate quantum state encoded on the photon can easily be destroyed by looking at it. Oh, no. So if somebody... By looking at it? Yeah, by looking at it. So if somebody looks at your stream of quantum encoded photons travelling down the fibre, they'll lose their quantum state and just become classical. And this can be detected at the far end and you know your message has been intercepted because it's gone classical instead of quantum. How can looking at it change things? Well, see, this is one of the great... Is this Schrodinger's cat? It is It is Schrodinger's cat. So most bizarre quantum behaviour uh, vanishes when you look at it. So um, it's a bit hard to explain because we're not used to this in everyday life. But Um, There's a very simple experiment, uh, one of the foundational experiments of physics, which is called the Young's Two-Slit Interference Experiment, where you basically shine a light on a barrier which has got two scratches on it, two slits that lets the light through. And you'd expect to see a shadow of this barrier as just two fuzzy lines on, on a screen. But you don't. If the slits are sufficiently small and close together, what you see is a row of lines on the screen, an interference pattern, because light is a wave, as we understand it, and the light waves fall on the two slits. More waves emerge from the other side, and those waves overlap with each other and create a pattern of bright and dark lines on the screen, an interference pattern. Any surfer will be familiar with this, with waves bouncing off rocks or off headlands and forming a pattern of choppy and still water as the waves overlap. So the same thing works with light. But at the fundamental level, light comes in discrete packets called photons. And so you have to ask, well, hang on, if you've got a single photon approaching a pair of slits, won't the photon go through either the left slit or the right slit? And that's the wrong question, because the answer is, yes, it goes through both slits. So it's very hard to understand this uh, if you consider light to be a particle, which it is. You know it's a particle because you can put a CCD camera to record where the light falls on the screen. And that just goes bing, 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 as single photons land in the detector. And it builds up the interference pattern, the pattern of... Uh, lines across the screen, not just two fuzzy shadows. But if you try and look to see which slit the photon went through, you don't get the interference pattern anymore because you destroy the quantum attribute of going through both slits at the same time. And humanity has been grappling with this for a 100 years. And the standard way to uh, deal with it is to, in a first-year quantum mechanics lecture, is you mention this strange attribute And then you never mention it again. You just bury it under all this mathematics so that you can deal with the amazing outcomes of this fundamental quantum attribute. But we are now trying to harness this strange attribute to do useful computing. But we have to make sure that the quantum computer doesn't get disturbed while it's processing the information. And that's proving to be a challenge. You've seen enormous change in your research career. What's been most surprising to you? 
Well, certainly the quantum technology revolution uh, has been quite surprising. I didn't see that coming, but uh, when I first heard about it, I was really excited about the potential. The computer revolution is sometimes called the first quantum revolution because uh, silicon chips all use fundamental quantum principles right down at the fundamental level, but we only ever exploit them in, in classical ways with streams of ones or zeros. But the idea then of reprogramming such a device and rebuilding it so that it exploits the quantum principles to actually do the calculation rather than the higher level classical principles was really exciting to me. And that's what I've focused on uh, for the last uh, decade or more. This begs me to ask, though, Moore's Law, if I think that's what it's called, where computing power doubles every 18 months. Is that the law? Isn't there a limit to that? Where are we with that? Yes, there is. This is this is a topic which uh, we often discuss, the implications of Law's, Moore's Law, uh, the, the doubling every 18 months. So the idea is that, um, well, the practical uh, result is that as you get more and more classical devices crammed into each uh, square millimetre of your silicon chip, you can do more and more powerful things, process more information, process things faster, generate images more quickly for videos and, and communicate faster through the internet. And as you say, uh, Gordon Moore uh, figured this out or, or, or put this out, I think maybe as a semi-humorous idea, with only two data points. The first two silicon chips, uh, the second one was twice as powerful as the first one and it took a year and a half to build. So he said, well, let's extrapolate and assume this continues into the future. We make them smaller, we put more chips in, we double we double the number of uh, devices, we halve their size, and this will uh, give us more flexibility and versatility. And it's been continuing ever since uh, the 60s when he laid it down. But it's pegging out because uh, we're now down at the fundamental atomic limit, and you can't have half an atom. So you can't have a, a, a transistor made from half an atom because nature is, that's the end. And so that will impose a limit for that method of increasing the power of a classical computer. You might be able to increase the power by having more and more computers working together to do things more quickly or do more powerful calculations, like in a supercomputer. But as I've indicated, there are even limits uh, to doing it that way because of the fundamental problem of the speed of light communicating from the left-hand side of the computer with the right-hand side of the computer. Plus, these these supercomputers generate an enormous amount of waste heat, and that the cooling problem uh, might kick in even before the quantum limit imposed by the discrete nature of matter. But the quantum computer offers a way around those limitations. David, we've passed the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Any reflections? Well, as uh, you know, this this was uh, such a huge event uh, for me and anyone who lived through it, I'm sure, from 50 years ago. I remember being sent home from school to watch uh, Armstrong and Aldrin walk on the moon live on our grainy black and white uh, television. What a wonderful experience that was. And even more wonderful uh, to go out at night and look up at the moon and know there were two people there walking around. And that was truly astounding. No human in history had ever had that experience before. 
But the legacy of Apollo was not so much uh, the dawn of the space age, but really the dawn of the computer age, because the challenge of getting people to the moon and back safely required machines of unprecedented power and complexity. And so the idea of putting a computer on a machine to control it Uh, was entirely novel and they had to build the computer from scratch. It had practically no memory by modern standards, practically no transistors by modern standards, but nevertheless, it was enough and the drive to make that mission successful drove a lot of innovation in that area. And I, I would say this was the start of the computer age because the success of the computers in controlling the machines and being a partner in the great enterprise uh, then propagated out into the wider world and we can't do without it anymore. There are too many of us and we live such complicated lives. The computer is absolutely foundational like air, water and uh, uh, energy. You've got to have the computers, otherwise our whole society grinds to a halt. It's our extended phenotype, as the biologists say. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's part of our bodies. (laughs) Professor Dave, what would you like us to think about next time we ponder the universe above and ponder the universe within our atoms? Well, that's a big question. Uh, How long have you got? So... um, uh, physics is sometimes described uh, in terms of two frontiers. One frontier is cosmological. You look out into the abyss of space, an enormous scale of space and time. Uh, Keep it in mind that the light that we see uh, comes from the distant past. In many of the objects in the sky that we can see at night, the light started millions and millions or even billions of years ago to be available to be seen on any given night. So that's a journey into the wide frontier as we explore the cosmos with ever more powerful telescopes and use the laws of physics as the guide to understand what we see. Gravitational waves, who would have thought a hundred years after Einstein predicted them, eventually we would be able to detect them and now we can listen to the cosmos as well as watch it with light. And the other frontier is the inward bound, the frontier into the subatomic the atomic and subatomic building blocks of matter. And this is also providing new insights into the way the world works. And so this has unlocked the potential of quantum technologies, quantum computing, and with its enormous potential. But also there are a lot of things down at the subatomic level we don't fully understand. We have the standard model for particle physics that seems to explain very successfully the way matter works and interacts. But there are some nagging loose ends that uh, need to be uh, tidied up. And we have the precedent that uh, 110 years ago, Einstein tugged at the loose ends dangling out of classical physics, and he caused it all to unravel. (laughs) And it set us on a new journey into relativity and quantum mechanics that we're still traveling on today. And maybe as we look down into the subatomic building blocks and tug at the loose ends that remain to be explained, new revelations will uh, become available that will be even more exciting than the ones we've discovered over the past century. Professor David Jamison, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been great. Thank you to Professor David Jamison, physicist at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on July 16, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. 
Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.